0: First. welcome to no prize from god episode 11. i'm your host ryan j downing no prize from god features conversations with creative people about belief unbelief and everything in between our guest this episode is karen crisis i first became familiar with karen through her work as vocalist for the metalcore band crisis more recently she can be seen and heard in the band gospel of the witches she's also an accomplished artist but most importantly, for the purposes of our conversations here, she is a self-described spirit medium. As she explains on her website, this entails communicating with and giving messages from the spirit world of guides, goddesses, loved ones, and friends. She's also a teacher of mediumship, the system of channeling and communicating with the spirit world based on the master teachings. And her work has also taken a turn towards historical recovery, focused on reclaiming ancient wisdom received through the old ways, as she says. She says, This feminine, receptive practice of devotional mediumship, which offers empowerment in this modern times of connecting us to the still-living legacy of the medicine women, wise women, and quote-unquote witches of the past, as well as their goddess guides and teachers. She's the author of a book, Italy's Witches and Medicine Women, Volume 1, which is based on her own experiential research. I believe she's in the process of relocating from the Bay Area, California, to New York City. She gives lectures, puts on workshops. However you feel about the subject matter in this episode, I think, like myself, you will find this to be an enriching, invigorating, and altogether fascinating conversation. Quickly, before we get into it, if you would be so kind, please go into the iTunes store and leave a five-star rating and a review of No Prize From God. If you appreciate what we're doing with this podcast, that's a big, big way you can help support... Because the more five star ratings, the more reviews in the iTunes store, the more visibility, and the more people can discover it. It's easy to do right from your iPhone or wherever you consume podcasts. I also want to mention the recent launch of a Patheos blog. If you go to Patheos, P-A-T-H-E-O-S dot com, look for "No Prize from God." There's a number of pieces spinning off from different episodes we've done of the podcast, as well as standalone, as well as standalone essays like a recent thing I put together on the similarities between. Between Star Wars The Last Jedi and Corinthians. So here it is, my conversation with Karen Crisis of Gospel of the Witches. This is No Prize from God. little bit about your background some of your earliest experiences and exposure to uh, you know life's bigger questions and that sort of thing where, where that came from um, i'm intrigued by uh you know something i saw on your website which is the notion that uh, you never you never had the chance to decide whether or not the spirit world was was fantasy or or reality because you were always sort of connected to it so i would love to hear uh hear all about that
1: sure that's really a good way to define my life i suppose um from a very early age i was aware of people that weren't as solid physically as you know my relatives or my sister in the room but i knew that they were real and that they had personalities and emotions and um Those are the kind that I would call ghosts, you know, um, old ladies, uh, old men, people in houses. um, I didn't necessarily always like them. I kind of felt like a lot of these what we would call ghosts um, didn't necessarily belong where they were or they had some personality traits that were, you know, jealousy or possessiveness over a a room in a house, or um, I didn't like the fact that they were watching me and not really communicating too much. Um, And then there were times where situations like that were very comforting. Um, One of my favorite uncles um, died. I thought we were just going back over to his house um, for a regular visit, and everyone in the car was really sad. And I kind of couldn't understand it. On one level I did because they said that he had died, but on the other hand, he was sitting in the car with me telling me everything's great and talking to me about music. So there was this duality um, that I really understood that I really trusted what I could see beyond the physical world. Um, It seemed very real to me and it was harder for people to hide their intentions or lie. Um, versus, you know, adults, especially adults in the physical world, I felt um, I had a lot of experiences that were adults taught me that I couldn't necessarily trust them. So it it was helpful on one hand when dealing with like family deaths. um, But it could be kind of scary at night for me as a little kid feeling like there were all these people in my house, and I wanted to protect my family from them. Um, But on on a very positive side, I was also always aware of, what I called like angels and helpers who were um, they didn't take on the same type of form, um, but they felt different. They felt really inspirational and positive and, and, Ever since I was little as well, I've been a creative person and I always had a lot of hopes and dreams, whether it was music or art or traveling. And I always felt like these angels or guide type of, you know, more positive spirit people were always supporting that um, because I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money. And um, my mom had sort of declared that I was not going to go to a college You know, of my dreams would have to be something practical. Well, I wanted to go to art school in New York City, and um, you know, those spirit guides really helped me go for it. And I ended up getting a a almost full scholarship to New York Parsons School of Design. But they really supported all my creative efforts and being brave because I was very much an introvert, and maybe you can understand too. Seeing all these things that um, other people can't see and then dealing with the, the physical world could be confusing at times um, or, or lonely, maybe not knowing who to talk to about these things. You know, I didn't know the word psychic and medium then. So these more helpful guides were the ones who really um, supported me being brave and dreaming big and, um, you know, taking risks to express myself outside of my my fears and you know growing up in a small town they're like so what you know dream big and so I always felt really supported when I did anything creatively by them um and that's kind of as I got older and I started to pay much more attention to that and understand how to organize that and and what all that means technically um you know then then it became much more comfortable and my whole life began to make sense but like a lot of people who are just sort of born this way um Life is definitely different, but I didn't really know what to call all of these things.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you are, you already alluded to something that um, I was curious about immediately uh, when you started talking, which is, you know, kind of the loneliness that can come along with a gift or a sensibility like yours and feeling that um, people don't see what you can see and, and in some ways, you don't see what they see, you know, right. Because it's not, everything sure. isn't just so physical and material. Yes. I would imagine one advantage would be, um, you know, so many of us, uh, struggle with the fear of mortality and the question of the great beyond and, and whether or not it's, it's oblivion and you're just extinguished or right. if there's some type of afterlife or if things continue. And, and I would imagine you weren't nearly as conflicted about that as most people. If you, uh, early on at you know you're in preschool having a sense that there are you know people people existing in some realm beyond what we understand to be living
1: Not necessarily all the time. I mean, I understood that there was a lot more to life than what was visible to the naked eye. But I didn't necessarily know, like technically, and I like to know how things work, um, like systems and things. I didn't understand necessarily technically what happened when you died. I I believe that like life continued on in some way. But I definitely um, was curious and I've always been very, very curious. So, my desire for knowledge and a healthy skepticism also, you know, pushed me along the way.
0: Now, I'm curious. Uh, you know, you mentioned obviously Parsons School of Design, and of course, I first became familiar with you via Crisis. Um, you know, I, I can only imagine. Uh, this is probably too big a question, even. But mm-hmm. what sort of a role um, the metaphysical and the spiritual? played in i guess we should talk more about in your beginnings uh, as a musician and as a as an artist in different mediums um was it all sort of intertwined did it ever feel separate was it um w- was it difficult to be in a band with people who maybe didn't understand exactly where you were coming from all the time or walk me through that yeah a bit. yeah
1: those those are a lot of questions um you know, when when I was younger, as I mentioned, I was always really interested in in creative projects, and I felt like wherever my attention went, um, it was very easy for me to pick up a new skill or learn something new. It, it didn't it didn't necessarily have to take a class. It, you know, um, now that I'm older and I know what to call things and uh, I understand things from inside and outside my experience, um, I would I I tell people these days, you know, I'm not really an artist, I'm not really a musician. Um, because, like musicians, I know, they spend a lot of time working on their craft. They, you know, get their equipment together and they honor practicing and writing songs. And of course, they have a lot of natural ability, but they also, um, at least the ones I know, honor the creative process and do a lot of work to develop. Um, or artists, I know, you know, spend time sketching and learning from other artists and um, following their intuition, absolutely. But also trying to, um, you know, study and learn and and take classes and understand materials. And I, I have never done any of those things. So my creative life has always moved around a lot more than perhaps I would like. Um, for example, if I was supposed to, you know, write a magazine or put a play together for my neighborhood, I did that. Or if I was like, when I was in grade school, I won the male lead in a play. (laughs) You know, and I showed up in fifth grade for this audition using sort of like a Karen Crisis growling voice. You know, where that came from, well, for sure it came from spirit guides. But um, at that time, I just somehow this very introverted me showed up I sort of growled my way with this male voice and I won the male lead. Um, When I needed to go to art school, somehow I won a scholarship. You know, then I was really interested in music and somehow I learned how to use the four track and someone gifted me a Korg Poly 6. And then before you knew it, I was going to New York for art school, but I ended up joining a band, which is something I'd always wanted to do. Um, And that was another one of those synchronistic sort of magical experiences. Um, And I, you know, I wrote the first song to audition for Crisis overnight. And, um, you know, when I showed up in the audition room, I asked them to play that song because I didn't really want to jam. I didn't know how to jam. And um, they played that song. And I remember kind of feeling a light switch turn on. I just sang all the words that I had created the night before and uh, jumping around the room ended up on the floor with the band (laughs) watching me, you know, and I couldn't tell if they liked it or not. And I decided to sort of leave the room and come back, you know, when I was less embarrassed but this is this is pretty much how how the sort of energy that helps or, or supports my creativity comes through me when it's time it comes through really powerfully really quickly and then you know it's time to do something else then i move on to painting and then when it's time to move on to something else i get pointed in another direction so i really don't say that i'm like a musician or an artist i'm definitely a medium but i'm not a medium who's just about talking to spirit relatives i'm a, i'm a medium who's you know, about learning from the spirit world. And in turn, the spirit world helps me understand how energy and abundance and creativity work and how it can ebb and flow and move and change and how to go with that flow. Because for certain, when I was younger, I thought I would be in a band for the rest of my life. Or when I started painting, I thought, okay, I'm a painter. I'm going to paint for the rest of my life. And it never turned out that way.
0: (laughs) And somewhere there's an there's an intersection of all of those things, and this continuity that you pointed out of of being a medium and channeling different energies, whether that's through music or through the healing work you're doing or writing. I would imagine it it feels like it's coming from the same source in a sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It, it's definitely you know coming through my. I have a pretty big team of guides. So when they want me to be focused on doing platform readings, my readings are very clear and specific. When I'm supposed to be teaching, they really intuitively plug me into the information that I need to give those spe- specific students. You know, when I need to write a book, they connect me to all the people that I need to meet and, you know, I sort of channel all that information together and, and find footnotes I need to substantiate my own personal findings. And it can be like being plugged into an encyclopedia, which is very exciting. And um, really that's that's the idea of shamanism in in cultures around the world, old shamanism, not modern shamanism, but it was really about you know living a very simple life and having needs arise and the spirit world would provide those needs you know through indigenous plants and the knowledge on how to use them to cure um, or to understand nature's cycles so that you could plant crops and harvest them. Um, You know, that's really essentially what the Spirit World Connection was always about, like providing needs for life on earth. And I found that creatively, that's the way that um, my guides move energy through me. Like you said, if I need healing or writing or music. um, And so when I feel them, you know, inspiring me, then I act on it. Um, and sometimes it can last for a short while, sometimes for a few years until I move on to something else. And and it, it, it's ever changing.
0: Hey, you mentioned, uh, I heard you say a couple of times, you know, referencing sort of this period uh, where you didn't quite have the language or the yes. kind of technical understanding, for lack of a better phrase, to Absolutely. articulate a lot of these ideas and experiences. So w- when did that begin to take shape. What was your sort of entryway into gaining a greater understanding of uh you know the historical significance of the stuff and um you know where what sort of leading you to where you are now to the the phrases and things that you use to describe what it is that you do?
1: Yeah that's a very important question to bring up. Um because I also work with a lot of people who are in this position. So I would say it was during the the period that I was in the band crisis from 1993 to, I think I left right at the very end of 2015. That was really um, a time period where a lot of things were opening up for me. Um, I found that a lot of people would tell me at live shows or um, as time went on that they felt like I was sort of a shaman on stage and moving energy. I didn't know what that meant. Um, Or they would tell me they felt healed by the music in some way. Um, A lot of people have done that still over the years saying that just the emotion coming through, it's, you know, it's not easy listening music, (laughs) (laughs)
0: but
1: the emotion coming through they felt inspired them or offered them healing. And I would notice at shows I would call my singing a summoning because I felt like when it was time to perform that the energy coming out of my throat and out of my body was definitely bigger than me. Um, I felt like there was some kind of presence watching over the band and I didn't even really feel like I was in my body a lot of the time for the performance. I noticed afterwards that I felt, um, after every live show, for example, I would feel very uplifted and cathartic. Uh, I would say it was like a catharsis. I'd feel very positive and I noticed after shows people would kind of flock to me and want to talk to me or hug me um, or just, you know, now I would say they were probably feeling the energy of that. Um, at the time, but what was also happening with all this energy and interaction was that I was able to sense people's thoughts and emotions, um, even more. I would know when people were going to die even more. Um, I was able to, I had a lot of premonitions about things happening, like this promoter is going to rip us off or there's going to be violence at the show, you know, kind of warnings. We had, um, we also had little things would happen like we had an accident in the van towards the later years, almost accident, where we were in a 15-passenger van with a trailer and all the traffic ahead of us locked up. And um, it was this, you know, t- we were t- the side of the road was to the left and it was not um, a flat embankment. So if we would have had to go down the embankment, we would have done one of those alligator rolls. Mm-hmm. It was very dangerous. And I... During the time we were touring, for some reason, I started imagining that there were four angels above the van and I asked them to hold those positions. I didn't know I was thinking of like four archangels and and the four quarters at that time, but I just felt them there and I would ask them to protect us. And so when this accident was about to happen, you know, the driver was slamming on the brakes. There were no brakes left. They were screeching so hard and we were about to slam into the traffic in front of us. And I just started yelling in my head to these angels to help us. And then I felt like we were safe. And I sat back in the van and said, Okay, okay, we're fine. We're, we're safe. We're good. And my bandmate said that I sat back and said that um, before the accident was even over, or the potential accident was even over. Wow. So I just intuitively felt on calling for protection from these guides, And, you know, it have a lot of interesting situations like that, where, You know, on tour, I'd meet someone's pet and um, I would help heal them or, but I didn't know what to call these things. I just knew that there was a lot going on and I was questioning it and I felt like I was supposed to trust all this. So, you know, I left the band at the end of 2015 and I told the universe, I want to know what all this is about. You know, I'd started doing yoga and Pilates on tour um, and I started healing myself um, just intuitively without really any education. So I said, universe, you know, I I want to know what this means. I want to know what this is. And so I left the band and I went somewhere where I didn't know anyone and the universe started teaching me. Um, And so it would be one day like I'd walk down the street and there would be a book or I'd find a free class on Gnosticism or I found a script for um, healing yourself and meeting your inner spirit advisor. Um, you know, it was, it was more about synchronicity going to the bookstore and a book would, you know, jump out at me at Barnes and Noble and I would read a page and it would feel like I was remembering something. Um, and so that time period for the next year, it was about, um, questioning, questioning and trying to learn what other people had to say about this stuff. And, One of the most impactful things um, that happened was I went through a really deep depression. I wanted to know who I was without music, like who I was without an identity, you know, without um, something that other people had claimed to or ideas about. And um, I found a book about affirmations, about using the power of your mind to change the direction and flow of your thoughts and therefore your experience. Um, and so I realized, wow, you know, I can, I have a really strong mind. I can do things when I want, I can get myself really down in the dumps (laughs) very successfully too. So there's, there's some power here. What if I were to intentionally use this power? And so I started using these intentions and I started meditating, you know, for a couple hours a day. Um, and then I had, um, I had a experience where I was going to bed at night and this white light, this cone of white light was coming towards me and I um, kept trying to blink it away and close my eyes, but it was very dimensional. And I thought, okay, this is death coming for me again because I had died when I was younger. And, um, I thought I'm not ready yet. So I screamed like, you know, I'm not ready (laughs) and it went away and I went to sleep and I dreamed about, um, Reiki. I didn't know what, that Reiki was a healing art. So I, w- I woke up in the morning, and this was kind of the beginning in 2006. I woke up in the morning and researched it. And I said, okay, you know, I need to learn how to be a Reiki healer. Um, and from there, you know, I went through the process of learning how to do that and receiving an attunement and starting to learn psychic language. And, and it wasn't until I started doing healing work very intensively. Um, And it wasn't until 2009 when I went to Tuscany that um, I connected on a very deep level with my personal spirit guide. And she pushed me towards training as a medium. And, you know, if you want to say like my organization and um, learning became very technical at that point.
0: And I definitely want to get into Tuscany with you, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to back up a little bit sure <laughs> and uh tell me about this uh near-death experience um as a child or as much as you're comfortable sharing if it's deeply personal obviously
1: oh, no it's fine um i you know grew up with some really intense allergies um not the typical ones but like if i'd eat eggs my throat would close and i'd have to go to the hospital um or like my eyelids would swell inside out it was, you know pretty dramatic um And one year, I think I was 11 years old, um, we went to visit some family friends in the South, and um, I had been put on penicillin for some reason, and I basically was having an allergic reaction to it while I was eating some ice cream that didn't have any eggs in it. And I remember walking around the house and my throat was starting to close up. And I really hated going to the doctors because I was a very ill child. And they're always, you know, poking and prodding me full of things and testing me and putting all sorts of, you know, cortisone. And I just didn't want to go back to the doctor. But my throat was closing and I was starting to get really dizzy. So I, and I couldn't breathe. So I finally had to go tell my mother and my godfather, who was a doctor, and I started going into shock. You know, they were slapping me to try to keep me awake um, while they took me to the emergency room. And um, I just I woke up the next morning on a heart monitor. And you know, this uh, doctor was asking me if I wanted to keep the suction cups <laughs> when I was <laughs> done there. And you know, I was trying to be cool, like, "Oh no, I, I got this." Um, but basically, my mom said it was a really dramatic experience. Like, they wouldn't let her in the room because it was the south and she was a woman. And that they had lost me and brought me back. You know, I I don't know really how long it happened. Um, And I didn't have any like white light experience, um, like a lot of people ask me about. But then for the next two weeks, um, I had to stay in bed at my godparents house. And something kind of interesting happened then, which my mother didn't tell me about until I was about 35. Um, So I was sort of in and out of consciousness for those next Um, two weeks and the bedroom was at the back of the house and it had a wall that was facing a garden and my mom and my godparents were apparently coming in and watching films with me and my godparents were very artistic so I guess they were very artistic films you know they were really interesting people and um, my mother said that every day she was seeing this figure outside of the, the glass who was wearing like a long black robe and had like a sickle, and she felt it was like the angel of death. And every day for two weeks, it was coming closer. And I guess when I was born, she felt like something like this was going to happen. So she was really freaking out, seeing it come closer and closer. And then I guess at the end of the two weeks, it came right up against the glass, and then that was it. It disappeared, and then I was fine. But what I didn't tell her um, was that for the next... For the next seven, eight years at least, um, when I moved to New York City and was an art student, and then was in a band, I couldn't really afford my asthma medicine, and there were times where I would, you know, be having such an intense asthma attack that I would faint. And, and whenever these asthma attacks would happen, I would feel the, the presence of this person next to me on my left, laughing at me, um, kind of, you know, in a sinister way, and it looked. It looked like the angel of death. I don't believe there's an angel of death so far in everything I've experienced, but at the time, it was taking on the form of looking like the angel of death, with you know the the sickle and the black robe and and laughing at me really evilly. And so, it it always kind of helped me um, learn how to slow my heart rate and get through an asthma attack without going to the hospital. But my mom told me about this years later, and I thought it was very interesting that there was this sort of correlation between what she saw when I did go through that almost dying experience or dying and then coming back and my challenges for literally staying alive with my asthma, um, for a good decade, I would say.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And then I had a lot of, uh, it's funny. I had asthma as a kid and I was allergic to freshly cut grass and <laughs> strange things Fun. too. And, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm a, I'm a Scorpio and we're supposed to be in tune with, uh, the psychic world a little bit more, I guess, and um, yeah, I'm definitely I, I,
1: driven to ask about it. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> to start this podcast, for example, um, <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, I I can relate to a, a, a little to some extent uh, what you're talking about, even with that that feeling of premonition sometimes of, sure. uh, you know, whatever. I never necessarily identified what to attribute it to, but would get uh, feelings and. Um, you know, and somewhere in there's probably a mix of obsessive compulsive disorder, <laughs> yeah. genuine superstition, and what you know, what have you. But um, yeah, but so, if you
1: re- if you really think about it, we you know we're we're really attached to our physical bodies and our hands and our eyeballs and our ears, you know, and our mouth um, and our in what we think is our brain. But everyone on a daily basis is using their intuition to a certain amount. Um, you know, you walk into the room where your partner, your lover is, and you can kind of tell their vibe, if they're in a good mood or a bad mood. <laughs> you know, um, you meet someone new and you either like their vibe, quote unquote, or you don't. Or sometimes you have a feeling like, I need to go, you know, into the kitchen and you find you left the stove on, Or you're imagining like a place you'd like to go visit, you don't realize you're using your clairvoyance to build images of things that aren't really there. And so what, you know, people think that it's true, practicing psychic sensing and practicing mediumship is a practice that it takes skills to do it accurately. But we're, we're all built to receive this information. And the easiest way I like to describe it is if you just imagine that for your physical body, you have like an invisible double. Um, and on your invisible double, you have a, a mind that's, you know, not a brain. It's like the intuitive mind where you get inspiration and quick, quick thoughts, and or you know things you don't know how, you know, and you have those inner ears that are sort of like above and inside where your other ears would be like where you talk to yourself a lot. And sometimes you talk to yourself, you get these really profound ideas and you're like, wow, where did that thread come through? You know, where maybe a spirit person is joining you and helping inspire you, um, and then there's your belly area where you can sense the emotions of other people you know on your on your energetic double we could say um, and your your third eye is yes there's a corresponding physical point for it but it really is not a physical eyeball it's you know an, an invisible invisible eyeball on your your invisible body that's located near your other eye so you have all these psychic senses that are located near where your physical senses are and and that's where the chakras come in too. They're like um, invisible, you know, managers of energy in your body, the way like your liver and your heart and your lungs manage the energy and the lymph and the blood in your physical body.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And, and would that be somewhat analogous to uh, what we would understand as like your astral form that you would, you know, that sure. you hear about astral sure. projection and things like that? Yeah,
1: that's a that's a, another word people use for it. It's like so, you know, if you think of your body as like a radio, you know, with all these knobs you can use to turn in tune into information. Um, with our physical body, you do that with your hands or your eyeballs, your ears, you know, or you know, your sense of touch or eating or smelling. But with your energy or your astral body, or people call it your etheric double, that's where you have all your energetic receptors. Um, and th- those energetic receptors are the ones that help you communicate with the spirit world um, through signs and symbols that relate to the physical world.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah. Um... Myth and allegory and signs and symbols and all that, which, I mean, we, we use the same type of language and descriptors to explain all sorts of abstract things that uh, people w- understand and accept as science, even, sure. you know, uh, in the physical world or invisible part of the physical world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm I'm interested. Uh, I, man, I really want to get to Tuscany, but I want to ask you something ah. else first. Um Gosh. Given the context of, uh, you know, having this conversation in a in a, I guess, a Western, bit of a Eurocentric, uh, you know, the, the context I think most people might be hearing this would be within the kind of monotheistic Abrahamic traditions, right, of the world's big religions. And I think some people are, are put off or afraid or skeptical when they hear talks about multiple beings and guides and angels and so forth. And I always think, well, in Catholicism there's, you know, people are often praying to saints to intercede on their behalf yes. on different events <laughs> and so on. And even in, you know, the most uh stripped down and basic of uh evangelicalism, there's the trinity. Um, you know, and or there's belief in the enemy or the adversary or the devil or whatever which is which is a supernatural being other than God. Um, so it's interesting to me, uh, you know, in some, some concepts that may sound, uh, shockingly sort of foreign to people who are reared in those traditions, how much overlap and, and similarity and all of that there is. And I mean, you know, certainly the fact that I have a, a Christmas tree in my house right now, as I'm speaking to you, isn't, <laughs> isn't, uh, isn't lost on me, you know? Um, so I'm curious kind what? of where you see some... I mean, obviously there's the historical side of it, but where you see sort of on the spiritual tip, some of the intersections maybe of, uh, you know, your particular practice and and, uh, belief system relative to uh, people who might be coming from more of that Abrahamic kind of monotheistic God perspective. you know, I
1: I grew up going to church too. And one of the things is that uh, there's a lot of, mixed messages, um, in, in a lot of the major religions and there is a reason for it. Um, but there's also some beautiful things in there, but one of the biggest things that I find is that, um, you know, for most people, one of the biggest questions is who is God or is there a God and what happens after, you know, the physical death? Um, and really to understand what happens, um, about in the transition of death, um, Going through that process of learning changes what you think you know about life. And that I find can be much more threatening to people. Is, you I mean I have to change my whole belief about life? You know, I've been living this way for so long. Um, what, what, what do I do after that? So I think that's where a lot of the panic comes from. Also, um, you know, in my experience, a lot of people find comfort in different types of religion. And I'm, I'm not criticizing that, but what I'm saying is, you know, a spiritual path and understanding what the universe and, and God is all about is um, is one that isn't necessarily meant to be comfortable <laughs> a learning experience is all about you know having an experience like going into the unknown so for some people that can also threaten a sense of comfort or or like some people I know needing to know, that some people just want to know, like, just tell me what the answers are. It's too much stress for me to figure it out, you know? (laughs) And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that happens. And, you know, you brought up saints, and one of the interesting things that I find in Italy is that um, there are links to, you know, pre-pagan religion there, and there's, of course, the syncretized Catholic religion and Protestantism on top of it. And the male saints are really... Interesting and kind of ironic, they have an ironic um, presence there because the way that saints came about um, in Italy during this religious period was that once these regular men um, or spiritual men um, died. Then they were sainted and they were said to be able to send back miracles from the spirit world to people on earth. But what was ironic at that time is that, for example, in my my book, Italy's Witches and Medicine Women, I talk about these lineage healers, these very poor, um, sometimes poor peasant women, uneducated women were curing disease and delivering babies Um with really successful rates like poor people and wealthy people were going to them and they were actually curing specific diseases, not just making people feel a little bit better. And so people considered these women to often be like miracle workers. And what we find is that, you know, the church was really competing. And this wasn't the first time in, in the you know 1500s, the medieval period, the, between 1300 and 1500 is when like the witch hunt started in Europe and lasted for like 700 years But we find a real competition between the church and peasant healers. Now, an interesting thing to know is that at this time period, so we have to look back from our modern time periods, the church was not trying to eradicate magic and sorcery and healing. Um, I talk about this in my book, which a lot of people don't know, but it's, you know, there's been so much stigma around um, asking questions of the universe that um, it still holds a lot of people in a place of fear. So, you know, in this in this time period, the church was actually competing with other healers and um, sorcerers. And they also started um, a university for male doctors. The problem was like male doctors were not able to understand female anatomy and babies were dying in droves. And that's where a lot of the idea of the witch came about, um, trying to turn people away from like the female healers and trying to find something diabolical about her, uh, which is how they actually created a collage of the devil. Um, the horns were the moon crescent and that's a whole other subject matter. But um, the fact is the church validated healing and the church validated spirit world communication. Then the, the talk only became negative when they were trying to turn customers literally towards the church. The church had a lot of money. They had more money than the Romans at times and they learned propaganda from the Romans. Um, and one of, of course, their magicians they were advocating was Jesus. Um, one of the, the troubles there was that, um, you know, a lot of the ways they chose to depict Jesus, uh, he would look young and then he would look female and then he would look old and he always had a wand and he was using serpents like just like the healers. They were they were depicting him in all the architecture and murals and sculptures as being and wearing the clothing of all the other healers and magicians and sorcerers of the time. Um, so they weren't saying that that was a bad those were bad things to do. They were just trying to turn people away from the other healers and <laughs> the other sorcerers, and towards Jesus. And then later, their their male saints, because um, people were going to the church and dying, like the monks. People were trying; we're not being healed by the church, um, and so the propaganda campaign really sprang out of this. Like we have to take the this this weird curing technique that we can't put our finger on it's an oral tradition in these family lineages like woman to woman um, and we have to turn people away from this um, because the monks were able to find some of the written records of healing herbs those go back in time but they weren't able to connect with the spirit world in the same way so it really became an ugly competition and that's where a lot of the lasting fear comes out of um, you know, people think that, um, the church was, you know, banning a lot of these things and they weren't, they were, especially in Europe, churches were looking just like, you know, magical practices and and shaman The just weren't really succeeding in curing people. Um, but they were practicing magic as well.
0: Mm. This is fascinating stuff. And it's interesting, uh, two separate thoughts I had listening to, uh, one, you know, when you were talking about some of the iconography, I mean, I have, uh, I have a, a tattoo of St. Patrick and, um, you know, there's snakes all over the tattoo. <laughs> it's like, <you> know, <laughs> hearing, hearing, hearing what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> the, the other thing is I just recently, literally last night, uh, rewatched the Godfather three for the first time. And, 15 20 years and and of course the whole plot to that movie revolves around uh corruption in the uh the business side of the vatican sure. <laughs> so yeah sure. it's inter- it's interesting in, in the whole in the scope of human history some of these things like when you talk about 700 years of a witch hunt i mean that's you know a blink of a blink of an eye you know i mean it, sure. it's all so much of this stuff was was really just yesterday for all intents and purposes um yeah and-
1: and just one other fascinating thing I wanted to add is that um, in Italy's history, um, we see popping up in folktales, but also in some of the Inquisition documents, when the church was trying to find something diabolical about these female healers, all they could find out was that these young women um, who had already been separated for some, from some of these healing practices, because um, in 4500 to 2500 BC, there were, um, there were like these male separatist uh, warring tribes that were invading Um, Europe and changing the community dynamic Um, and that's where paganism came out of too Um, so we have if we go back to the um, pre-Inquisition time period the pre-witch hunts the church was finding that these young women were saying that this like lady, they called the good lady or the lady of good things, um, or the lady of nighttime, was coming to visit them and she was teaching them midwifery again, you know, how to be a midwife and how to cure their illnesses with local plants. And so we basically have traces of this spirit circle, you know, women learning from the spirit world in Europe. And... So these were also documented in these interviews, and the church decided, because at the time, the Romans were making certain gods and goddesses that they liked popular, and Diana was one of them, who's often associated with Italy, but she's not considered to be from there. And so they, they gave the name to this good lady, Diana, who was, that was not her, her, really her name, but she was a popular goddess at the time, and since they wanted to sort of add some negativity towards this, you know, female lifestyle. They're like, we're going to use this, you know, goddess's name. And there was also at the same time, the god Pan, a pan or Pano, um, was also embraced by the Romans as being like the god of the forest. He was often depicted just as, um, you know, a man with red curly hair and sometimes he had animal hoofs. Um, But he was just kind of like a guy um, who represented nature and they decided to crown him with the moon crescent um, because the moon crescent um, was still a symbol widely acknowledged as being belonging to the divine feminine. Because um, if we look back to pre-Pagan times, there was no male and, uh, female and female god pairing in Europe. There was the Great Goddess, the Great Mother. You know, everything came from the Great Mother, and the other symbol of her regenerative life property was the bull skull, because it exactly exactly replicates the you know the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, and the uterus. Um, so these were symbols used in this very early language, depicting like the life-giving and life-generating power of the divine feminine energy. You know, they believed life continued on after death of the physical body. Like, all of this was already in practice in the world. So when the church found this, you know, this lady of the night, this spirit lady who was helping people, they decided to, you know, crown this, this male god with the moon crescent, sort of giving him some graffiti that says, okay, he belongs to the divine goddess, um, and that's where the devil was created visually by the church. Of course, the idea of the devil always existed, this evil character, but, but the man with the horns who was, you know, taking women on these sexual orgies in the forest, it was something that was actually created by the church because they couldn't find anything diabolical or and, heretical.
0: And it's fascinating because Lucifer the fallen angel is, is thought you know is described as beautiful you know like like something that you would picture then in that context as looking a lot like the western depiction of jesus maybe you know or gabriel sure. and and then yeah and then suddenly that's now transformed into some hybrid of pan and whatever else with hooves <laughs> and horns and yeah it's very it's fascinating stuff fascinating mm-hmm. yeah and, and i and i and in reading a little bit of your work um you know some of the things you learned visiting italy about you know, the Celts and the Druids and uh, the Egyptian goddesses and just all all these different, um, it seems like a really interesting spot in the world for so many different traditions and ideas to converge. Um, What do you think it is about Italy in particular and that area and and where you spent time and and heard stories? And um, what do you think it is about that I mean, I hate to say magical as if I'm making a pun, but what makes it so magical? (laughs) Um.
1: (laughs) Well, Italy um, historically has had a few places um, on on its land that were really important, um, what we'd call crossroads for travelers from other countries. Um, so for example, in the, uh, Northwest, almost in France is this village called Triora. You would spell it T-R-I-O-R-A, Triora, we would say. Um, and it's a mountaintop village, medieval village. And, you know, people coming from other countries are wanting to cross through there, literally had to climb up this mountain and pay a, a fee to cross through this area. And so there were a lot of travelers. So we have a lot of, um, you know, Celtic people coming through that way as well. And in the north um, east, sorry, that was the northwest if I didn't say that correctly. And in the north east near Udine, we also had like the Longobards come through. And this was an important crossroads up there too. So we're talking about like the top part of the boot that spreads out like an umbrella. So the two farthest points there. And the Longobards, um, well other people came in there as well um, because it's landlocked and there's also sea at a certain point but the longobards were this really fantastic um band of scandinavian people who wouldn't necessarily conquer and wipe out whoever they would you know supplant they would incorporate a lot of the spiritual practices of other people in the lands that they went to um but also we have and so they they had a presence in all of Italy except for a little strip through the middle where Rome was for quite a significant amount of time in the north and in the south. And so they brought all of their different practices and then in the south near in Benevento Benevento is a city that was founded like 500 years before Rome Rome actually planned a lot of its layout based on Benevento Um, that was another place where it was like another important crossroads So people coming from the sea and from other lands um, would cross through Benevento and so we have you know Egypt there we have Greek People going settling in Sicily, we have Persian culture, we have Turk, um, pre Turk, before Turkey was Turkey, it was Phrygia, um, had a, a substantial part to play in the Tuscan landscape in Sardinia, we have Scotland. Um, just because of how it was um, in the water and people were seafaring, and then the places it was landlocked near other countries it was an important crossroads so there were um, a lot of really strong imprints from like gaulish druids and celtics um, from different places that are you know celtic practices still practiced there and scandinavian traditions and egyptian ones and scottish and again greek and persian and uh, so depending on where you go um, you'll find all sorts of interesting influences like in uh, Guardia guardia sanfremonti this medieval village I stayed with at length in the south, their local dialect sounds very French. (laughs) So you just, yeah, it's a really fascinating country.
0: Now, I know uh, for a lot of people listening, um, obviously the word witch is a loaded phrase and comes with a lot of cultural connotations. Most of them either, uh, you know, I mean, whether it's Samantha on Bewitched or... (laughs) halloween costumes uh you know the wicked witch and you know all of these different um ideas and then of course the actual uh very tragic um disgusting history of uh, the witch trials in salem and so forth casting all of that aside without tasking you with the burden of undoing all of the misconceptions Mm -hmm. about it um tell us what what is a witch actually? What should the word mean? What, what, what's the true definition that you're living and breathing every day? That the next time I hear someone say the word witch is what I should hear.
1: Well, this this is one of the things that I talk about in my book. That is uh, maybe. Uh a problem of language. I mean, language can be great. It can be definitive and help us describe things, but it can also be very limited. And so we have to talk a little bit about the past and what a witch isn't to really get to what a witch is. And in my book, in fact, I talk about the word witch, um, and in its many dialect languages, it's like, um, Also, the word bashoe or strega in Italy, for example, um, there are a lot of different words locally that mean "witch," and they all have a negative connotation to them. They mean like bitch. Some of them literally mean like bitch or the oversexed lady. Those all came about from the church. Those all came about from the church. Um, So you have to understand those were part of a propaganda campaign. But a lot of these negative ideas started even earlier. So we have to really look back to like the island of Malta and um, the Paleolithic and Neolithic era before paganism started. Our our original language is a psychic one, you know, and that's how people survived on the planet was with a connection to the spirit world. And this was mostly women. Um, who did this because, well, they had babies coming out of their bodies, so they had to take care of them. There wasn't really time for trial and error, you know, like, because there wouldn't be a population. And that's where they learned the calendrical cycles. They learned the cycles of their own body. They learned the clock of nature. They learned how to plant and harvest um, and cook and heal with plants. And they learned a lot of, um, you know, globally, what what men call the secrets of nature. Um, And men and women apparently lived very harmoniously until that time period I mentioned, 4500 to 2500 BC, Um, you know, when we had these separatist tribes who brought in war and um, they started, you know, changing life um, and its symbols that pointed to nature to ones of male dominance. And, um, you know, they were um, industrializing life, um, you know, like helping animals birth more animals and, you know, taking control of of civilization. Um, And so that's when a lot of the spiritual stories changed too. you know, the goddess became just a wife to the God, the God was responsible for birthing the, you know, the populations in the mythological stories, like through his third eye or through his penis. Um, and we have the story of the evil witch starting to happen where, you know, there were these beliefs that when a baby was born, you have to be careful because, you know, the witch, the nighttime witch is going to come and make the baby sick. And and so we have a lot of those stories change, whereas men and women believe that the spirit world was a benevolent place, you know, and then it was like the great mother just because like, On earth, we have the parallel of the woman who can give birth through her body and, you know, nurture and take care of that life. Those stories change to be about men. So we have a separation from nature. You know, men had to conquer nature. Man had to go in and and conquer other villages and communities, and he had to have weapons to do this. And, you know, he had to create animal husbandry so there would be food to eat, you know, for the new populations that he has invaded. He has to feed the people. And, you know, well, we have to, you know, have institutions for religion now, and we have to, you know, make money for cures. And so life became more synthetic, you know, and um, so that's where these ideas of the evil witch came from. In my book, I talk about what a witch is In, in, in Italy, for example, and I'm just using this example, because it's a slice of global life. There's no, there's no one name for witch in Italy. Now, modern times, there are a lot of people calling themselves witch. Um, but in Italy, for example, a lot of the women we would call witch through a cultural eye may call themselves like levatrice, like midwife, or an erborista, like an herbalist, um, or a healer, um, or someone who divines futures, um, or a lineage healer. And they don't really have name for that other than guaritore, which means healer. Or guaritore signatore, which means healer who uses signs. You know, so in Italy they use a very simple language to describe what women do. They cure, <laughs> and how do they cure? With a finger massage or with oil and water. It's very simple. So, um, you know, there are some people who say being a witch is someone who does magic spells. There are some people who say a witch is someone who cures, um, or someone who you know is connected to the spirit world and lets the spirit world guide them in whatever service they need to provide. So the the word witch really is a difficult word to explain because there's never, in Italy, for example, there was never one unified witch cult. There were, you know, women with different practices of channeling and doing magic and ritual and then pre-pagan practices, which were just about feminine shamanism, which are still alive today, and were about healing and improving life. Um, You know, these were didn't have specific names for them. It's just in our modern times, we've given them specific names. Um, so it's really hard for me to, because history tells me there's never been one unified cult where you could call every single person in that a witch and have it mean the same thing. I wouldn't be able to say that now either.
0: Now, and oh, man, what a perfect answer. <laughs> Actually, you may have, you may have felt like that wasn't the answer that one might be looking for, but I think that's that's the authentic one with some insight and context to it, and I much appreciate it. And you know, and I think that that's, um, I think that we're mistaken in our perceptions of orthodoxy with a lot of faith traditions. You know, for someone to call themselves a Buddhist, you know, that could mean a number of different they could <laughs> different uh, sure. systems and histories and lineages that they could be adhering to. And and especially hearing you break it down like that, it makes it that much more. Um, disgusting and frustratingly sad you know something like the witch trials where it's just this blanket term that's being tossed at. you know i mean it's like the it's like the word heretic you know that could be <laughs> that could be uh anyone and anything that's challenging whatever yeah. the existing uh dominant um system is um so my, uh, my last question then would be uh, for anyone who has ever felt a tug in this direction or an intuition or, uh, you know, beyond even the, the history of it, which is, I think, fascinating to anyone on any place in the spectrum. Um, what would you say would be kind of the first couple of steps uh, for someone who is on, on a pathway similar to yours, for example, where. You know, as you mentioned, there was a time where you didn't really know even where to look or how to understand the things that you were kind of intuitively feeling. What would what would you recommend uh, someone do to, you know, maybe that's listening to this podcast and is fascinated <laughs> and wants to uh, take a step forward?
1: Well, luckily, there are a lot of different things you can do, and they're all revolved around um, – they all revolved about are around learning how to trust yourself and listen to your inner wisdom. That's really the most important thing. So, um, for example, I learned how to um, meditate with the help of like guided meditation when I was starting off, which is, you know, where you listen to a track or you read a script of someone guiding you into a relaxing place where you can talk to one of your body's organs or, you know, try to meet a spirit guide and do a dialect that way. Um, or you can take, um, there's a really great book called You Are Psychic. There's a million books called You Are Psychic, but there's one. <laughs> <laughs> literally, I think. There's a book called You Are Psychic, um, the free, I think it's the free soul method by Pete A. Sanders. And he is like an MIT scientist. And he talks about like where your psychic receptors are located and all these practical, simple exercises you can use to pay attention to how you receive information and what that feels like or looks like or. So you can get to understand like, oh, I'm already doing some of these things without even realizing it. And so you learn to understand like how you're, you know, how I call like your, your, your radio, you learn how you're tuning in to different stations. If you're someone who's already having like experiences with the spirit world and maybe they're a little scary, you could try to find a spiritualist um, spirit circle. Now, spiritualism. Is an old practice that came about in America in the eighteen hundred mid 1800s, and um, it tends to look a little old and fuddy-duddy. You know, sometimes you go there, it looks like a church. It's a lot of older people. But what's great we about, think about it's- uh, uh,
0: like Abraham Lincoln's <laughs> wife, right, <laughs> the first lady.
1: Sure, but what's what's great about the system is that it's non-dogmatic, and you can have any other belief, and, and you learn how to use this system, and it's basically a system about learning how to um, change your vibration and clean up the space around you, and you practice with other people like you how to um, connect with the spirit world and get messages from like guides and helpers and re- relatives and loved ones. So if you're someone who feels like you're sensing ghosts everywhere and it's freaking you out, this Learning this system helps clear out all the sort of riffraff and, and the train station. Um, and it helps you understand how to set boundaries with the spirit world. Um, so there's there's a lot of different avenues. Um, I would just suggest someone, you know, trust your instincts always. Your instincts are always talking to you. Sometimes maybe you're afraid to listen to them. But when you just start learning, um, there are so many different avenues you you'll really be guided to where you need to go next. Maybe you want to start, um, you know, learning Buddhist meditation, and you're really excited, and you show up, and it doesn't feel right for you. Okay, no problem. Try something else. Maybe it's the perfect path for you, and you wouldn't know till you tried. You know, um, but but learning some type of me- meditation where you learn to communicate with like your inner wisdom, um, or if you're needing to learn from the spirit world, I would recommend doing something really clean um, and structured like spiritualism. Um, because for example, I trained as a spiritualist and then all these goddesses and cultural guides started appearing to me. So if you're meant to, you know, connect with the path of like mythological guides and goddesses and something else much more exciting culturally, you'll be able to, but you'll learn how to interpret that information much more clearly, which is very, very helpful. So really any of these paths that teach you how to listen to your like small, still voice within are helpful. And along the way, if you get a teacher that you don't like, that you sense is, you know, kind of not who they say they are, trust yourself and go find somebody else. Um, Because the whole process is really about you learning to trust yourself and to stand up for yourself and to protect yourself. And that's what a lot of people who have, you know, psychic gifts already in operation are afraid to do because they've been made to feel evil or different or kind of scared because they have dreams that people are going to die, and then they die, and they feel like somehow they're at fault.
0: Yeah, or fear that you're uh, opening yourself up to something sinister by, uh, you know, creaking, you know, peeking through the doorway a little bit. Um, and I like that idea of, of uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny when you talked about uh, clearing out the train station of the riffraff, you know, some people may hear that sort of, language or that sort of talk and think oh that sounds ridiculous or delusional or fantastical and yet that same person may in another situation be the kind of person that says you know I'm satan, i satan i bind you away from this conversation <laughs> or you know yeah. uh or, or even down to the most scientific and rational of people who uh wouldn't want to be in a building um with asbestos Sure, and it's like, well, why? I mean, because aren't isn't the danger you're afraid of really this invisible thing, and you need to know in the abstract, really, that somebody came in and took care of this physical thing to protect you from this. Ad- so it's it's interesting to me the the cultural languages in which we can accept or not accept something, or
1: yeah, and there's a lot of you know there's still a lot of superstition and drama around these kind of things, which is one of the reason again I. I can't speak for all spiritualist places, but I had a good experience while I was there because I learned like what are the laws of the you know the, of energy and how can I use them. And so if I'm dealing with the spirit world and I'm dealing with something a little darker or you know seemingly scary, I can use these laws and I know that I'm going to you know get an effect like set a boundary or clear the situation. I know my rights in the spirit world. In other words, because I've met a lot of religious people who just want to declare everything a demon you know, and they kind of go over the deep end when it really doesn't have to be quite so dramatic. I mean, those experience, those things do exist in whatever way you want to call them. But not everything is as dramatic as people want to lead you to believe and once you do know you know a system or really how the energy in the universe operates it always operates according to a system um, it really can help bring a sense of peace to you too and go okay I can look beyond you know this cultural language I can look beyond this superstition I can look beyond this drama and kind of you know deal with things in a in a more practical way and be responsible for you know them and how I respond in this situation
0: Karen, I'm so happy that I sought you out Thank <laughs> and, uh, you. <laughs> lured you into this conversation because this, this all this stuff is really fascinating and it's and, and I'll say as a as one last sort of thing um you know earlier today I spoke with a theologian uh who uh, is a is in the Quaker tradition the sort of the progressive side of the Quaker tradition and a big thing that he emphasized was the idea of qu- quiet contemplation and uh, expectant co- contemplation meaning that you know you're not just sitting there stilling your mind in silence for its own sake but that you're also expecting to communicate and, and hear things and learn things and express things and uh, it, to me it it it, it Brings home something that I've always kind of intuitively felt, which is that um, so many of these seemingly disparate faith traditions and practices in their in their true sort of primitive core, um, without all the bullshit attached, are uh, it's all the same. (laughs) You know, it's all it's tapping into the same uh, greater mystery that that, uh, you know, keeps us all moving around. Yeah, and
1: really, and really, I think one of the best things you can do is ask questions and have a healthy dose of skepticism because, you know, asking questions is going to get you answers, especially if you're asking them of the universe, you know, and you sincerely want to learn. And um, skepticism, now if you're going to be a real hardline skeptic and not believe anything that comes your way, well, then you're, you know, obviously blocking out uh, learning experiences. But if you're a healthy skeptic, it's, it's a really great opportunity for the spirit world to say, okay, well you know we want to prove you wrong and in this way and they bring a really positive experience that helps you learn about yourself and your own navigation system and where it fits in with the greater universe um so it's like you said you know asking questions and listening um it's a dialogue you know the universe wants to dialogue with you whether you want to call that god or goddess or the great mother you know the um, the universe is waiting to communicate, and it really is about asking questions and being aware of how those answers might
0: come through. Thrilling, invigorating stuff, and this this kind of conversation is exactly why I've uh, started this podcast. So
1: <laughs> fantastic! Well, thanks for the opportunity.
0: You can find out more about Karen, her book, her lectures, workshops, readings, art, and music at karencrisisheals.com. That's K-A-R-Y-N, Crisisheels.com. No Prize From God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. You can find No Prize From God on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find me at Ryan Downey on Twitter and at Superhero HQ on Instagram. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.